When you hire purely for a very specific archetype of a person, right? Like you've almost overdefined your culture. Um, he, he was like, it's inbreeding. And I think that can happen too. And, and I think one of the ways that that does emerge is when everybody's like, hey, yeah, seems like a nice guy. Well, guess what? We tend to like people that are more like us. And so if you have a large group of very thoughtful people who are laid back thinkers and that's what your company is made up of, then when someone comes in and they're more forward, they tend to take action and think about it later, a lot of your people may like step back and be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hang on, what's going on here? But actually that different approach could be very helpful to your organization. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Karsich. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Better Games podcast, newly rebranded. Um, today, we're going to cover hiring and finding the right people in three distinct sections. The first one is going to be our principles on hiring and guidance that we think we can provide on helping you understand what your principles are because every organization is going to be different. The second section is going to be about actually distilling those principles and who you're looking for culturally into an actual process that will find those people for you. And then the third thing the third pillar is going to be the pitfalls that we often see and the mistakes we see people make when going about the hiring process. And this is going to be a two-parter, by the way. Um, we're actually going to focus kind of on the high-level frameworks and strategy today. And then next time, we're actually going to bring on um, a special guest who's going to help us like get into the nitty-gritty and really understand what can go wrong and how to make things right when it comes to a, an ideal hiring, hiring process. So let's kick things off with principles. Oh, man. Um, I, I like how you wrote this first one. Um, whatever the ideal candidate looks like, determine it up front. Um, I think this is this is something that needs to ground. Like, wh who am I trying to bring in to the org? What am I looking for? Do I know that before I begin? Or am I hiring with some vague idea and then hoping I find something that fits. Um, and yeah. there's, you know, a lot of times I think people want to leave it vague because they are like, well, I want to be open to whatever that person brings. And there's, there's something, there's like a nugget of truth in that. But man, if you leave it too vague, uh, it's so easy for you to get caught just looking at like, well, this person doesn't actually fill the role I need them to fill, but they seem like they've got a lot of good skills. Or well, since I wasn't really sure what I wanted, I don't even know what skills I needed. And this person seems like they're cool and nice and good at stuff. And so let's hire them. Yeah. And you you end up with this with this weird mismatch that no one even recognizes a mismatch because you weren't actually thinking about what is it that I'm looking for in this role. And there's often so many different types of people that will still meet that description of what you're looking for. You know, it's it's interesting. A couple things came up for me. And and what what you're essentially saying 
And I think that this is so important and so powerful. What you're essentially saying is you need a framework when you walk in, especially on interview day, you need a framework that you can map the individuals you're interviewing against Mm -hmm. to make sure that they are the right person for the job. And what you're saying is understanding the job and understanding the person before you interview, before you talk to somebody, is the way that you do that at the most fundamental level. And we're gonna reference this pitfall that we often see, which is, I I always use the cheeky phrase, seems like a nice guy, Mm -hmm. or seems like a nice girl. I I hear that all the time in interview roundups. I've I've heard it so many times and in a not ironic way or a not sarcastic way. Yeah. Um and and again it it goes back to this principle of when we don't have a framework, when human beings don't have a framework, we will create one on the spot. We will create one on the fly. And we talk about this a lot when it comes to incentives, a lot when it comes to culture. If you don't declare what you're looking for up front, you don't have a hypothesis, you will make up some other story to justify whatever you need to justify down the road, which is a very dangerous place to be when someone's inside the building already and there is a need. They wouldn't be there if there wasn't a need. So back to what Ben was saying, Make sure you understand the principles of the kind of people you want in your organization and the kind of person specifically you're looking for for this role. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of like num- principle number one. Um, principle number two, and Ben and I have are, are going to kind of put forward two different models that speak to a way that you can prioritize the things that you see and the things that you're looking for. We tend to think about candidates because everything's trade-offs, right? Like no one's perfect. Everyone's gonna have strengths and weaknesses. Everyone's gonna have skills and gaps. We tend to think about an order of importance, like a hierarchy of needs, when thinking about the boxes that someone needs to check proverbially. And I wrote down the model culture product process, which is something we often talk about um, in terms of holistic leadership. And Ben wrote down the model, character, attitude, skills, and knowledge. We'll go into these models a little bit more in a second, but the the idea there is that the things that I mentioned first are more fundamental and more important and will have more of a positive or negative impact on your organization than the things at the end. Mm -hmm. So in other words, on the culture product process side, I I would describe that as somebody who's got the right character and the right values to fit your organization is more important and more impactful than somebody who understands the audience and the audience need, which is more important and more impactful than somebody who uh, thinks like you do when it comes to process and technique and how to get things done. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are not important. And some of those things are close and some of them overlap. Like I think audience expectation and audience resonance Actually, for example, at Riot for us was a huge part of our culture and values. Like if you didn't value the player first above everything, including the stuff going on inside the walls of Riot, you are not a good fit for Riot. Mm-hmm. So that was that that bled over, that product thing bled over into culture. It was culture as well. But the idea there is that you have to meet the most fundamental needs before you can move up the hierarchy. Whereas like so much, we focus on the skills and technique 
Like, how did you solve this specific problem? What tools have you used? Are you familiar with this project management software? Like that stuff is way less important than a person's character. If you hire somebody that has all the right tools and a poor character or a poor character match for your organization, they will do so much damage by the time you figure it out and get the leverage you need to remove them that you will hate life. <laughs> and I've seen it so many times before. Yeah. So. Um, I'm going to kick things over to you, Ben, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about character, attitude, skills, yeah, knowledge. I, I, I got this um, I got this model from someone about hiring. Um, if I if I remember correctly, it was a guy named Bob Holtzman. Um, and I, I don't he, I think he didn't come up with it, but he shared it with me. And he made a chart that basically said time to fix a problem with an individual at your organization versus impact to the org. Um, and so those would be like your X and your Y axis on this. And he wrote down four things. Um, first was character. Character basically filled almost the whole chart. It was like very high time to fix if you have a if you hire someone and they have character issues. And what I mean by character issues, um, pathological liar, um, somebody who has no ability to speak up under any circumstances, somebody who can't stop speaking up and does nothing but like, you know, huge inflated ego and epic confidence, but perhaps too far and misguided. Um, mm -hmm. The time to fix those sorts of like core character issues with individuals is long. And the impact to the org of character issues is high. And so getting character right matters a lot. Um, and, and then you go, basically you step down as we go through the other steps attitude. Uh, I would prefer to have somebody who was cynical and bitter over somebody that was a pathological liar. But man, a bitter or cynical person, someone who comes to work with a poor attitude, um, is also going to be something that's going to take a long time to potentially resolve if they walk in the door that way. Uh, and it's also going to take, it's going to have a huge impact to the org. Yeah. One of the, one of the things in the uh, attitude section, the attitude part, that to me is one of the main things I look for is a person who is inclined to work their way up the responsibility ladder, like to get themselves to a place of being and feeling responsible yes. for what's happening around them um, versus somebody who is more focused on blame and excuses and justifying why things aren't going well. Um, like somebody who's willing to dive in and say, I can help, I can yeah. make this better, I can make a difference is is like night yep. and day. And I think curiosity also is one that fits into into mm -hmm. attitude as well, where like growth mindset is more character, you know, can they, can someone sort of embody that over time? Um, so then uh, attitude, yeah, still a long time to fix and still a high impact to the org if you have someone on your team um, or in your space that has a bad attitude. We've all encountered somebody who, you kind of don't want to work with, and perhaps that's because of their attitude. And it could be their, again, it could could be related to them being almost too positive or whatever, or it could be them being negative. Um, so, so you want to find a, a good fit there and recognize that if you don't, it has a high cost. Uh, then you get to skills. And if someone doesn't have the right skills, that also has uh, some amount of impact to the org, not as much as attitude or character. Um, but it also takes uh, less time to fix than attitude or character. And so it's, it's kind of nice. Um, and then finally, knowledge. Knowledge is the least impact to the org and the shortest time to fix because knowledge 
um, while not triv as trivial as you might think, it's not as simple as just go read an article or something. It's often something you can, with not too much time, actually get into somebody, and then once they understand the knowledge, then they're good to go. Um, what is fascinating, and the reason that uh, Bob shared, shared this model with me, I think, is we often focus so much in our interviews and in our hiring processes on skills and knowledge. And those are the easiest things to fix. Um, the character and the attitude is so much more important. And so that was this was a helpful frame for me as I was going uh, through and thinking about it. What, you know, as we go through this, and um, I might actually pull a fast one here and swap and go into pitfalls after this, and then close out the podcast with distilling principles into process, mm -hmm. because um, there already there's a bunch of pitfalls that are popping up into my head that are just absolutely crucial to get into and help people understand like where we go wrong and how we apply our principles. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, and, and again, there's no right or wrong here about what you select. I think if there's one sort of central theme here we're trying to emphasize, it's that you need to select some set of principled criteria by which you're assessing people. And as long as you put forward that hypothesis and you test your results against that, you can always pivot it later. So again, you may say, well, the person needs to be a learner, like a, a lear like a lear somebody who's like a culturally and attitudinally a learner is really important to us. And, and we're going to ask, is this person a learner to the, the um, interview panel afterwards? Maybe that proves to not be that helpful over the next six months or a year. And we change that. Mm -hmm. But so we're going to have our own opinions about certain qualities that are important, but we understand that they need to apply to your local culture, whatever works for your organization. Mm -hmm. um, you Now, go a step further from that. I'd say personally, humility and learning are something I would almost never want to compromise on, no matter which company I was at. And if I had a company that was like, we don't value humil humility or learning, I'd probably be like, you are wrong. <laughs> um, but that's just, I, I don't want the emphasis of this conversation to be on the specifics that you choose. I want it to be more about the framework that you as leaders apply and making sure to be deliberate and thoughtful about that framework in your context. And one of the things I want to go into is this idea of experience because mm. experience is some is one of the most overused words I hear in our industry and one of the most overused and misunderstood concepts when it comes to hiring. And I find myself very frustrated by experience. And my personal anecdote is when I first got into my career, I started at 25 and I remember thinking how late I thought I was to the game. Like surely I would never amount to anything super impressive because, you know, most of my friends had gotten into the job market in their early 20s. And here I was, this proverbial haha old man. And again, I know there's a bunch of that's misguided about this thought process, but I quickly started to realize that, like with so many other things, what I would get out of my career was what I would put into it. Mm -hmm. Like the uh, how hard I would work, how open minded I could be, um, how many bitter pills I could swallow. Frankly, mm -hmm. um, there were mo there are moments even today. Like where, uh, like in the last couple of years where I've swallowed insanely bitter pills, like existential crisis level bitter pills where I, where I had to look myself in the mirror and say, I actually don't know that much about this. I don't think I know what I'm doing. Or this job requires me to do stuff that I've never done before and I'm terrible at it and the evidence shows. Mm -hmm. 
The point I'm trying to make is experience to me is completely subjective based on a person's attitude, based on their orientation towards their environment, based on how hard they work and all of these things. It's not as if somebody sits in a chair for 20 years that that equates to some linear amount of experience. Right. In fact, I would say that it is the case that I've interviewed many older folks who had quote unquote 30 years of experience and who had been frankly doing nothing but pushing JIRA tickets around for 20 of those years with a director title. And I'm not here to bash on those folks, but I am here to say, be careful about how you use the word experience and how you apply it. This is a principle for me when it comes to hiring. What does experience mean? How does one get experience? Because I've seen people out there in their early 30s who throughout their 20s were in the military and solved incredibly complex organizational problems in 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 the heat of battle literally or in a strategic concept uh context where real lives were at stake and 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 managed their stress and their anxiety and their self-doubt to overcome all those problems then went into an industry where they knew nothing and and rebooted learned everything from scratch had the right attitude humbled themselves worked their butts off slammed their head against a wall and and never allowed mediocre results to be an option. Mm-hmm. And so, and I and I've seen people at the same age with the same amount of time in the industry that have got vastly different amounts of value out of their 10 years of experience. Yeah. Not everyone, if you put five people in the same exact situation, they will all come out differently. So why do we consistently rate experience as some kind of linear value associated with years on the job? I don't I, get it. I think for me, it's it's the shortcut. It's the most convenient shortcut we can take. And it, we make a whole ton of assumptions that in our nuanced reality are not true. But we're like, well, I mean, they've been working in AAA development for 20 years. They must be good, right? And Or they've been working in software or they have this you know, we, we talk, we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but they have the pedigree, right? They've worked at a fang company, you know, they, they came from Google. And, and we use these things as simplifications in our own decision-making, you know, and like uh, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. It allows us to just think fast. We don't actually have to pause and go, what did they say? How did they respond? And, and I want to come back to the idea too, that this is why like you should be thinking about what the ideal candidate looks like not from a, like, that's not like, it's somebody who's been doing this job for this many years. That's not what we mean. Um, what characteristics are you looking for? Yeah. Do you require leadership in the role? Because, and I'll get a little bit into this, especially in game dev, especially in game dev, where we bring um, what for so many other industries is an unprecedented amount of different sort of subject matter expert different disciplines, different crafts involved to make some of the simplest things out there. Like you need art and writing and design and all the standard sort of publishing and of course, engineering and QA and all these things. Like it, it's it's not something you can just have, I, not anymore. You can just bring a couple engineers together who happen to be able to like do a little bit of 8-bit art or something and throw that throw together a good product. Like that's not how games work. So 
especially in the game space, your ideal candidate is somebody who can work well with others within the context of your culture. Yeah. And their 20 years of experience somewhere may not at all equate to them working well with others. It could it could even work against you depending on the 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 differences between the culture you're hiring them into versus the one that they came yeah. from. Like this is another thing too. And it's why, and again, I, I don't want this to come off as, hey, if you've spent 30 years working at company X, you are completely enraptured by their culture and there's no way you're ever gonna change. Like I don't, I'm not right, subscribing right. to the old dog new tricks mentality. What I'm specifically talking about is you it it you need to double down on the importance of actually assessing the real things you need to assess and one of the real things you might need to assess is has this person demonstrated in the past an ability to adapt and change their attitude based on learnings they re they've received or based on a changing environment or the changing customer need or whatever it is mm -hmm. like that would, if I did hire somebody or I wanted to hire somebody who had been at, at, a, at a company that I felt had questionable culture for 30 years, I would double down on my exploration of their proven ability to show that they could learn and change their attitude. Because if they didn't have that, that would be a major issue. That would be a major concern. So what I'm saying is it's not so much what is a bad idea and a good idea. Back to what Ben said, again, it's the principles that you apply, the needs of your environment, and the things that you focus on. We, we tend to focus on the wrong things. And again, even, and I don't think, when I think about what I believe experience is, I don't think it's a bad thing. No. Like if somebody has a lot of experience going into environments where they didn't know what the heck was going on, figuring it out and finding a good solution that solved for the audience and their teammates. I'm like, wow, that's great experience. Yeah. And, and right? you and I, like we primarily hired leaders and there wasn't a time where when we were hiring someone more senior into the organization, you know, Hey, I need to put you in charge of a 30 person org or whatever. Um, we never were like, yep, let's look for someone straight out of high school right to go do that no. it's it's you know don't get the idea that we don't think experience matters it's that all experience is not created equal and number of years is not the right measure um because yeah. you know one of the things that i would often do is if i knew someone came from and it became clear in their conversation uh early on they came from a culture that i might say was very different from the one i was hiring for right like riot or wherever if if they could talk to me about that culture. What did they? How would they related to that? How would they learn to function in this inside of that dysfunction potentially? Or mm -hmm. you know that that might be harsh. The different function. How would they learn to stay true to their principles and values if they had them? And if I'm interviewing a leader, I want them to at least intuitively understand some things about that. Um, yeah, that was really important to me. Can you talk to me about how you tried to change that or isolate your team from the busted parts of the culture? Because every culture has some busted parts. How did you um, protect your team um, without potentially sheltering them? And I'm not saying that stuff to them, but I'm hearing that come out. And, you know, they could jump in either direction. Some people were like, no, I just let the entire dysfunction collapse onto my team. And I'm like, well, that's not good. And other people would completely describe over sheltering their team and almost becoming like 
protective, you know, mother bears of their team. You know, one thing, one thought you just brought up for me, and this is interesting. It's a little bit of a light bulb and it might sound silly. We talk about deliberate frameworks versus non-deliberate frameworks, right? If you don't have a deliberate framework, if you don't have clear principles on hiring and who you're looking for and how to assess that, you will make one up on the fly. Mm -hmm. Sound Seems like a nice guy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 20 years of experience. One of the things when we talk about, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of discussion out there around discriminatory hiring practices and um, unconscious bias and, and these sorts of things that are, without going too deep into that side of things, it strikes me that if you're non-deliberate about the way you hire, the risk of having those Absolutely. kinds of things creep in to your process increases dramatically. Yes. Right. So like if you go in and you're like, I'm looking for a person who's solved these kinds of problems. I'm looking for a kind of person that demonstrates this kind of attitude. And you write those things down on the proverbial whiteboard and you walk all your interviewers through that and you say, this is the archetype we're looking for. And that is completely agnosticized away from sex, race, economic, socioeconomic background, whatever, I think you actually dramatically reduce your chances of making a poor decision and being discriminatory and or allowing any biases that you do have come into play. Yeah. There. You can, you um, can never get rid of all of them, but if you're going to mitigate it, yeah, if you're going to mitigate it, the, one of the things is like, what is it we're looking for? It's like at the end of the day, is this, you know, lady, is she demonstrating this attitude? Did she demonstrate this attitude? Yes or no? Right. Cool. Guess what? She checked all of our boxes. She's the perfect hire. Right. Right. You know, like, um, like, like that's, that's, I think a really interesting, um, piece of this that, that just struck me. And I think that that could be a very useful tool if you want to, if you really do want to find the highest quality candidates. Um, so we've kind of talked about the, the, you know, the primo pitfall of not having a framework at mm -hmm. all. Um, just going in and just like allowing instinct to assess the candidate. And um, I'm sad to say I've seen a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And um, if I'm honest with myself, out of the pool of available people that I could have interview a candidate that I was thinking of bringing on, um, I was very selective and it was a very small group of people that I actually trusted to assess in the way that I wanted them to assess um, or the way I thought it was appropriate to assess um, because that stuff always bothered me. This seems like a nice guy. Feedback and interview roundups always bothered me. Yeah. It's like what – that's not your job. Yes. Your job is not to figure out if he seems like a nice guy. Your job is to figure out if this person is going to be a, for, a force multiplier, that they're going to have the right attitude, that they're going to come in here and lift up their teammates mm -hmm. and do awesome stuff and make good decisions. Like, so, so that's a big pitfall. Um, I think another thing is, is again, even when the culture is firm, as I think I have seen it in the past, like where it's like culturally, we kind of know what like minds feel like. I think distilling that into an acceptable assessment criteria is actually tricky mm -hmm. to do. Um, you have to actually know what you're looking for. And one of the things Ben and I would often do is sit down and write down, like when we were creating rubrics and stuff for this, we would write down, look for these things. Mm -hmm. 
you know? Like look for these specific things. And when you map those criteria against the principle, like the principle is humility. We want we want the person to demonstrate humility. Okay, cool. How would they demonstrate that in a way you would be like, yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. You have to draw that line between what are you looking for? Like what are the triggers? And then the actual concept yeah. itself. Otherwise it's not practical. And people are just going to kind of flop around and, and, and miss I, things. I remember someone talking um, to me about interviewing and they were actually concerned with the interview process at the place we were working. Um, and they said, uh, I've seen I've seen articles recently that say like, hey, be careful about like culture fit that can be weaponized. And I think I saw that and I loved how someone described it to me. He said, when you hire purely for a very specific archetype of a person, right? Like you've almost overdefined your culture. Um, he, he was like, it's inbreeding. And I think that can happen too. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the ways that that does emerge is when everybody's like, hey, yeah, seems like a nice guy. Well, guess what? We tend to like people that are more like us. And so if you have a large group of very thoughtful people who are laid back thinkers and that's what your company is made up of, then when someone comes in and they're more forward, they tend to take action and think about it later, a lot of your people may like, step back and be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hang on, what's going on here? But actually that different approach could be very helpful to your organization and vice versa. If everybody in your organization is a doer and they just like jump on action and getting things done and and they, you know, they confidently walk into every room saying I have a plan or whatever it is, then when you bring someone in who's very thoughtful, a lot of people might go like, wait a minute, this person doesn't seem like real leader material. And the reality is that both a thinking style and a doing style have their place in the world. And if your company contains only one or only the other, you will lose the benefit. And this is one of the key things about diversity. You know, like when you bring those different sort of perspectives, ways of thinking cultures together, you get advantages from people approaching the world in different ways. And that's, that's, crucial to your long-term success as a company. And by the way, you've, you've illuminated another thing uh, there too, which is that it helps you uh, make a distinction when you're doing an interview with a potential candidate. It helps you make a distinction between the methodology they, like the tools they yes. use to solve a problem and their actual ability to solve a problem. Yes. Because you may actually want to diversify your tool set. Exactly. You still want to make sure that the person was able to get to the result. Yep. So they tell you the story and you're like, wow, you nailed this. You shipped the project or you fixed the team or whatever it is. Um, if you don't approach interviewing in that way and, and you don't, you don't observe what skill set or tool set the person is using, or you dismiss them for using a certain methodology, you're actually falling, potentially falling into the trap you're describing. Yes. And, and so on the, on that one hand, you have sort of the, the, this inbreeding. And on the other hand, let's say you take culture and you just don't even know what it is and you ignore it. Now, actually you're bringing in people who in the absence of culture will create their own. And it may or may not line up with what you as the leader in the space or the CEO or whoever actually want, like how how you want people to behave and interact with each other. And so you have to be aware of it, but you don't want it to be a straight jacket. Um, because if mm-hmm. it's a straight jacket, you will culturally inbreed and lose the advantage of diversity. And if you don't think about it at all, you will 
uh, end up having uh, such a watered down and meaningless culture where it's different in every different part of the org in such dramatic ways that it's almost hard to work with each other inside of the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're, you're trying to strike that balance. And I've seen that pitfall on both sides, actually at one company. One, one thing that is a pitfall I can just mention really quickly because it's not super deep concept is the idea of checking your work. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I think there are a lot of emotional reasons why we are uncomfortable with the idea of going back and asking ourselves, did this person work out? Mm -hmm. Like were the assumptions we made about this person who they actually turned out to be? If so, why? If not, why? Now there's some sensitivities about this, right? Like I know, for example, we probably don't want to sit down with the person and review all of the notes taken by everyone who interviewed them. That probably isn't a good idea right? That probably doesn't create a safe environment for interviewers to write their notes down. Um, what I am saying though is <clears throat> specifically if a person really doesn't work out, like if it's a catastrophic meltdown scenario where they either had to get fired or, you know, they did something horrible and alienated themselves from the team or, or whatever, um, I think it's worth going back and looking at the process by which they were hired and asking what happened and doing a retrospective there. So there is this sort of like closing the loop on that so that you can actually validate that the technique you're using and the approach you're using and the people that you have interviewing is working either, either way. Mm -hmm. Like what can we do more of? What do we need to do less of, et cetera? Mm -hmm. um, I don't see companies do this very often and it and it's, seems like a miss to me. The world is so complicated. You know, when you were talking about that, we talk a lot with classes and with clients that we work with about the difference between a growth and a fixed mindset. And one of the things I've said is um, an interview is unfortunately, but perhaps necessarily in, in how they're often run, um, it's a fixed mindset exercise. Mm -hmm. It's, hey, where are you right now? I can't assume much about you changing um, without some demonstrated past potential of that. Like I, I really have to just accept what is and attempt to make a judgment. And in some ways it's completely, it's, it's unfair, you know, you might say, or something like that, because well, what if someone doesn't show up well to the interview on that day, you know, that's going to happen. Um, and what if the interviewers didn't ask the right question or were in all, they were all in a bad mood. And so they were just like, they were all feeling angry. That could happen too. We can't control all for, all of this. And, and so you're, for me, it's always, you're doing the best you can under the acknowledgement that while we like to be growth mindset about everybody, when we're bringing someone into our organization, we have to make a judgment call over whether we want to do that or yeah. not. And this is, I think, why yeah. some companies like Facebook, I think a while ago, um, I don't know if they still do, they probably still do. They'll actually bring you on into the team for some number of days and you'll work with other people um, on whatever you're going to be doing. And that way they get to see, well, how do you actually work? And I like a lot about that, but not every company has the resources or the capability to really set that up. Um, and not every candidate has the ability to take days off and go and do something like that. And so mm -hmm. if you are doing, you know, like, hey, we're doing an hour long interview or a sequence of hour long interviews, recognize the constraints. This is a fixed mindset exercise when we probably want to be more growth mindset, when we're open to people growing and learning and changing. But right now we're just trying to evaluate, do we think you can do this job well? And that should ideally, acknowledging the problems with that, that should also allow us to be reflective. Like, hey, we made a mistake. You know, this was, none of this is ideal. None of this is perfect. Um, 
it's okay that we at some point hired somebody who didn't work out and we had to fire them or they left or they caused some problems in the company or it took us a long time to bring them to a place where they were valuable. That I think some one of the thing one of the reasons we don't like to reflect is why human beings generally don't like to reflect. Mm-hmm. We don't want to look at our past mistakes and sort of acknowledge them. Um, and, and we don't, especially we don't like to go back and look at the actual notes we wrote and say, which of these were true and weren't. Because when we write those things about like, well, this is what I see as the potential of that person or not, we're often so sure, but it can be so useful. Because if you tend to always believe that people are going to be more successful than they are, you should know that. And if you know that whenever you go into an interview, you can sort of have that frame in your own mind and perhaps share that with a hiring manager who, or whoever it is responsible for the hire. Um, so that they know like, hey, I like them I, I for these reasons, but I tend to be pretty optimistic. Um, I was known, actually, I was pretty pessimistic about candidates. I had a pretty low uh, hit rate on, on interviews of like, for, you know, we, in a, like a thumbs up, thumbs down type system. I tended to be more thumbs down than thumbs up. And, and actually, I think some people valued that. And it's one of the reasons they brought me onto the panels. Um, but it, you know, I, I kind of recognize, like, I tend to be more skeptical. Um, and maybe that makes me too harsh as a candidate or as an interviewer. And by the way, I want to, I want to dig into that a second, because I remember, um, I, you needless to say, you were always on every one of my panels without fail. Um, so that should show you what I value. Um, I remember hearing comments um, made to your face. And sometimes when you weren't around to the effect of like, well, you know, Ben never passes anybody or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to take a quick aside and talk about another pitfall that I think is present there, which is that this idea that as a manager, a hiring manager, you come in and you're like, well, I don't want Ben on my panel. He's just going to say no. Mm. The thought process there is my goal is to get a body into a seat. That's what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. Like now, if you believe Ben's a bad interviewer, different problem entirely. Yeah. But what they were communicating in that moment is Ben is basically, pardon the phrase, busting my balls and making my life harder. And so I don't want to put him on my panel. So what you're also saying by that is for me, what I want to optimize for is throughput in my process as opposed to making sure that the person is the right person. Mm-hmm. Now, again, maybe maybe you feel like the trade-off doesn't – maybe Ben's too harsh and you have it, You feel like it's not mapped to res- – like whatever. If you have a framework around that, that's great. That's fine. Um, but I really want to call out that I've, I've – I get it. And let's be frank for a second. We've, if you've been a hiring manager, you've been in a situation where somebody key on your team just quit, or you've had to spin up a new team to ship something in six months, and you only have one person, and you have to find five heads somehow in the next six months, yeah. and you had to fight for approval for three of them, and then by the time you got that approval, you had one month left, so you're already going to be behind. Like I get it. You're stressed out. It's scary. You don't want to look like a dunce. There is nothing more expensive for a an organization than hiring the wrong person. Yeah. Whatever problems you think you have today, they will get worse if you hire the wrong person. I promise you. Yeah. I've been there. I've made that mistake. I only had to miss, thankfully I only had to make that mistake once. Uh, I was mostly able to learn from other people making that mistake, but like the destruction that can be wrought Mm. from, from what you feel is you being expedient about getting the work done when it comes to this subject 
is something that you you cannot easily take it back. And I've worked in my career mostly at an organization that was more comfortable with letting people go when they were not culturally aligned. Most companies nowadays, it's getting harder and harder and harder to let somebody to go, let somebody mm-hmm. go. So the cost of your mistake is going up over time. Be really careful. I know it sounds harsh what I'm saying. I don't mean it to sound harsh, but it's super important. Like one of the things that always seemed bizarre to me when I first joined Riot was how there were so many people on the team um, that were spending between 10 and 30% of their total workload on hiring. And not just on like find the physical finding of people, but also like writing extremely thorough write-ups after phone screens, doing a ton of phone screens. We had an intensive interview process, all day interviews, like when they'd come in. And I remember it being like, wow, this is heavy. There's a whole team of people, even early on when we were still a tiny company that was like devoted to making that process work. And that process was seen as sacred. Bringing somebody in was seen as sacred. Yeah. Like your responsibility as a hiring manager or an interviewer was seen as sacred. And I think that that went a very, very, very long way in helping find people who added a lot of value and and avoiding the value suck of people that might have come in and caused problems. Uh, So just keep that in mind that, again, expediency is a dangerous trap to fall into. There's always ways to optimize a process, but don't never give up your principles, never give up your culture for expediency. And like it's it's better to bring somebody in who will say no 80% of the time if they're focused on all the right things. I, yeah, I think that's that's that key for me. You're going to probably in your career, like you said, there's no perfect candidate. And the one that seems perfect throughout all the interviews, you just don't know what their imperfections are yet. You'll find out. Um everybody has them. And so that, you know, there's a, there's a place to take risks in hiring and to go like, you know, I talked, we talked earlier, know what you're looking for. One of the reasons, you know, is so that if you do compromise on that a little bit for a a particularly high potential candidate or someone who doesn't quite index as you originally thought they should, but perhaps over indexes in other areas that you realize could be really valuable um, during the interview process, like it's okay to take those risks sometimes be careful because yeah, Aaron's seen it, I've seen it. This rush to bring someone in, it backfires every time. And the easiest time, you know, some, I mean, we're all people and ideally we have some amount of empathy for the other, the people around us, for the team that doesn't have the key member, uh, the key skill set in order for them to succeed, for the candidate um, who wants to work for you uh, and, and help add value. We, we have all this empathy and we have all this feeling for them. And it only gets worse if you make a bad hire. The easiest time to stop, to, to end the relationship temporarily, potentially, right? Like I'm, I have nothing against, I have nothing against someone coming back in six months or a year or two years and trying again, interviewing again. Um, but if it's not the right fit right now, if they're not the right fit for that team, don't get caught in but I really need somebody. Um, like it, it seems so convenient. As a manager, you're gonna spend so much more time unraveling everything that somebody who's a bad hire does to your organization 
um, than you would have if you just waited. And also, by the way, there's something else that starts happening, which is you start figuring out, like if hiring takes a long time, you start figuring out how do I solve problems without hiring, which is a really good thing to think about. But that's sort of a separate topic. I think we're pretty close to being able to move into like, okay, how do you actually structure this and do this? There's one more pitfall I want to call out, which is once you determine what your framework is, so you have your principles, right? Mm -hmm. Of like how you're going to approach hiring, like how you're going to find the right person. What, how do you assess experience? What does experience mean? What are, what's your sort of hierarchy of needs, you know, culture first or whatever. Um, There's also like, I, I tended to go into interviews as a hiring manager and I'd be like, okay, I want to assess on these in these five areas. And finding people that you trust through the, through their demonstrated success can assess someone in those areas. Like leadership was always a category I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I had a panel slot that was just for leadership. And I knew I had like which of the three people like that I knew that were excellent leaders and, and thought about leadership the right way were going, one of those people was going to be in that hot seat mm-hmm. interviewing for that. And if I couldn't get one of those three people, I would not do the interview or I would do it myself or I would, you know, but like, and there were things that I wasn't confident that I could interview for as well as others. And I would have them sit in for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if, it came down to it, I might even take their judgment over my own on something. Like when you're forming a panel, when you're selecting who's gonna interview with you, be very careful. Like, don't just pick all your friends, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Or pick people you like, or pick people who have organizational credibility. Do the homework of assessing whether each one of those individuals has actually proven themselves in the category you're having them interview for. Yeah. Because they're more than likely people who are deliberate about how they approach that thing and also can pick up on the nuance. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we're going to talk more about this when we go into like how to actually approach interviews and the technique around it. But like so much of it is nuance. Mm-hmm. Like picking up on nuance during the interview process. Yeah. yeah it's faulty. It's, it's funny because it's, it's a judgment and it is, it is to some degree faulty. Like I said, it's a fixed mindset exercise. Um, yeah. You, but you, you have to do what you can do. And I love also that what you're talking about there is avoiding the pitfall of a bunch of very similar interviews where everybody asks the same questions. Yes. And by the end of it, it's like, oh my yes. goodness, are you also going to ask me um, so what made you interested in this job? And so what do you do in your spare time? Like yes. I've answered that question seven yes. times. It was a lot of work, but to your point, I often handed my, uh, inter- my interview panelists, little index cards, which were like, find out this, this, yep. this, and this. Yep. And like that's, and that was so helpful to them. Again, you you, we, we think as we're describing this, there's this, like, it takes time. It takes time to do this right. It's, and, and by the it's way, so uh, it's worth it. It's worth noting that this is one of the most extraordinarily burdensome processes. Oh my gosh. That you could possibly go through. Like and and you're interviewing um, a coworker. Like there's someone you're just yeah, gonna partner I, with to get work done. And I don't mean that it's burdensome or um in the sense that it's like not fun or annoying. I mean like it's it's a heavy load to take on. Like if a manager was like 
I had a big year of hiring this year and I spent 40% of my time on that, I'd be like, that follows. Yes. Yeah. Like, like I, I mean, I don't, that we could have a whole separate conversation about how you're spending that time and whether that's optimized, but like that, th that's not a shocking number to me. No. Um, because like, again, writing out the note cards, coming up with the interview templates, like sitting down with all your hiring managers, talking to your recruiters, hiring panelists, looking finding for, the right where people. To find them. It's, yeah. it's insane. And, and again, like sucking it up through that low hit rate, right? Like even when, you, even if you're good at making sure that by the time someone comes on site, um, that they're a pretty solid bet. Yeah. It still to me isn't outlandish to think of maybe a 20% or 15% yeah. chance that they actually get hired. Like I I mean I had people give me a hard time about this and be like, "Well, if you're bringing somebody on site, that should be a sure thing." And I'm like, "No. Maybe. I mean, I I think that like that there's there's always more you can do to improve there, right? And optimize. But like I I just I think that those sorts of thought processes can are actually the dangerous things that get us caught in the trap of expediency. Yeah. And by the way, if, so, if you're a really small video game startup, like a lot of this sounds like, oh, you have these big organizations and all these people. Don't overthink this either. It is always going to be time consuming and it should be mm -hmm. time consuming. And especially if you're a startup, because mm -hmm. you're bringing in formative people to your organization. Yeah. Like if you're if you yeah. just started your video game company and it's you and four people you know and you've got a great idea and you're moving forward and you suddenly realize we need to go from five to twelve to get uh, some sort of prototype for investors out, right? Because we want to start you know raising capital or whatever. Have right there. Have those five people that you have on your team start thinking about well, what are the key parts of our of our culture here that we want to start interviewing for and let's start specializing in a couple of them, each of us, so that yeah. we start creating the ability to have panels of people that interview around different topics. Um, and this is kind of getting into the distilling principles into the process part, but like, don't think this is just for giant companies of hundreds or thousands of people. Mm -hmm. It is actually even more important for the smaller companies, because if you bring in yeah. somebody who's going to not fit with your, the way you want to work, the way you want to be as a company, and that's employee number seven, or let's say seven through 12, now you've just given them a tying vote as you move forward organizationally. What's the law that says like you can only maintain like about 150 active connections? Uh, is that, like that. Is that Dunbar's a, number? Yeah, Dunbar's number. And again, forget about like, I don't know the science behind that or anything, but like um, I found that to be directionally true when it comes to maintaining relationships. Mm -hmm. To reinforce Ben's point, the first 150 people are actually part of your nucleus mm -hmm. because each one of those people can maintain 150 relationships. And if you're one of the first 150 people, that means once you go beyond that, you are starting to stretch yourself. You're starting to have to, to drop old relationships to maintain effective new ones. Yes which means that that nucleus is incredibly important for your culture because that that's going to be what holds the line against toxins getting into the bloodstream mm -hmm. right so to 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 be to Ben's point you really 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 want to overinvest in this earlier mm -hmm. like i actually feel like a lot of companies do the opposite where they're like eh, you know we kind of have a good feel for it and what the culture is and it's like no be more deliberate in the beginning. I don't think you ever want to necessarily become less deliberate, but you're going to have to trust 
in the global process once you expand past a certain point because it's going to get there's going to be too many people. Um, and what you want to make sure is that that nucleus is strong so that it can you have enough antibodies in your immune system to fight off the bad stuff when it comes mm-hmm. in. Oh, there's another there's another thing I want to do real quick. Another pitfall. Um, you mentioned checking your work, and you you meant that as sort of hey, can we retrospectively look at the decisions we've made and which ones worked out and which ones didn't. And what did people say? Not as a way of pointing fingers, but as a way of like, let's learn from this and continue to do better. There's another way of checking your work um, that is really important and easy to skip. And it is um, reference checks. Mm. Um, Take them seriously. Yeah. Um, Sometimes we can get to a place where we've gone through all the interview process and now it's like, okay, we got to make our reference calls. And it's almost this formality. And I remember even thinking that Take those seriously. It's interesting. I think a lot of the reason people don't is I think that there's a the conventional wisdom around reference checks is that the deck is stacked yes. by the candidate because they're giving you the references. And I remember feeling that, having that be my first instinct as a hiring manager. But I think I started to realize that I could actually get really valuable information from them, even though the, the form the information took at times was like, yeah, well, if I, I, I mean, he doesn't really have any weaknesses, but if I had to say, if he had one weakness, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a big one. Right. Right. Cause like it, you're going to, you're trying to play it off. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, and, and one thing too, is also to, what I would do is remind the reference that I, that was pretty much almost a done deal at that point so that they weren't going to do anyone any harm. Mm. Like what? Like a, a a clever question is what would be your tip as a manager, mm-hmm. or like what what like what advice would you give me as a person who's going to manage Jim or going to manage Sally? That's usually where you, like you can ask clever questions to get some stuff like read between the lines stuff out of yeah, there. Yeah, so. and, and I remember there were sometimes where reference checks, even on candidates that had done really well, that I would do. They made me pause and consider because here's the thing: hiring is just the start. This person still needs to show up and integrate into the culture and team and organ, whatever else. Mm-hmm. No, having done the reference checks and having taken them seriously, even if they don't change your mind about whether to hire or not, if they allow you to understand a little bit more about how that person likes to learn, types of information they receive better, how often they're going to want to talk to you, like that sort of stuff, it, it can actually be really valuable for you. So, so in that sense, check your work as well, go through the interview process, but also, I mean, um, Ryan Scott mentions, we were talking to him, like, if you can talk to people they've worked with in the past, um, recent past, not don't go too far back because your information has a half-life and it's faster than you think people change. Um, but talk to people who've worked with them recently and, and, you know, do that with their permission. I'm not saying go behind their back, but try to get an understanding of like, hey, how was it to work with this person? Uh, because you can learn a lot that'll help them succeed, even if you choose to go through the hire. And if you do find a bunch of concerns, you can bring them up before hiring and see how the person responds to it. Um, so anyway, that was that was just something else. Another pitfall is not yeah. taking those let's, seriously. Let's move on to like the the practical. Like, how do you do this? What are some pro tips? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to cover right off the bat, uh, this is a popular topic when it comes to interviewing, which is the difference between good questions and bad questions, or maybe a better way to say that is effective versus ineffective questions. There's been some new science on this, um, and some companies are a bit more forward-looking 
uh, Google released a bunch of stuff, for example, um, around like proper interview questioning that you, you get a lot of these brain teaser type questions traditionally. Um, like, you know, what is it? How many gas stations are in the United States or something? Yeah. Or this, the, what color is the soda that comes out of the soda machine? If like these, these questions, um, I think it's sort of now conventionally understood. These are not great questions. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, even if those questions exposed somebody's technical aptitude or technical skill, as we mentioned earlier, you, you really, no matter what you're asking, you want to surface that cultural and attitudinal orientation that the person has through all of it because and 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 the specific way you do that is by asking questions like tell me about a time when you solved this kind of problem or tell me about a time where you experienced this kind of challenge or what was the most rewarding part of your career up to this point and why like these kinds of questions again there's many more like there are many more like it but these kinds of questions are better because it's not just about asking the question it's about the follow-up questions that you can ask as the person is going into detail exactly. and again they will tell you about the techniques that they employed but you will also get an incredible hints or knowledge about their attitude and their cultural orientation like how they view the world so that's that's those are the uh, the sort of multitude of reasons why you want to ask questions like that instead of like the ah gotcha questions or you know solve this problem for me like yeah. there's a time and place in that specifically for engineering roles it's like we do need to actually assess your technical aptitude yes. there will be some very pro engineers interviewing you to make sure that you can actually solve complex programming challenges yeah um, but in general. The things that are going to block you from being successful at most organizations are going to more often be cultural and attitudinal than they will be technical. That is yes. ba based on the model we talked about. Yeah, it's, Again. it's almost a, like while we value the things on you know the the right, we value the things on the left more. Like that that yeah. idea. Um, I don't want anybody to walk away thinking, oh, I ju I'm just going to hire people who have great attitudes and character and I'll put them yeah. in whatever role and they'll figure out the skills. And no, if you're hiring an engineer, you need someone who knows how to do engineering. If you're hiring an artist, you need someone who knows how to do art. And by the way, having people in your company who you trust to evaluate those things um, is very important. I will say, and this was something um, I remember a guy named Dave Hieronymus, wonderful engineering manager and product thinking engineer that I worked with um, for some time, like phenomenal uh, individual. Um, he would he would talk about like hiring practices around engineering a lot. And one of the things he said is, Ben, the, the most senior people in our engineering org are not the best coders. They're not the people who know C++ the best. In fact, some of our associates are some of our people sometimes that know C++ the best. Um, when I'm hiring, I'm hiring for people who know how to solve problems with technology, not for people who just know how to code really well. And, and that subtle difference in what he was looking for and the way that the engineering organization, uh, which was large at Riot, um, was able to work with that and, and figure out how to hire high quality engineers. I mean, you and I both had almost nothing but positive experiences with the engineering organization. They did a really good job. And I think it was because they focused on the right thing. It's not that skills and knowledge don't matter. It's that skills and knowledge don't matter as much. Yes, they, they need to reach some level. Don't hire a senior engineer who can't code. And again, this is kind of uh, touching on pitfalls, but we do see that 
scenario where we've hired this like genius technical person, whether that person be on the art side or the design side or the engineering side or whatever, and their attitude and culture are not aligned Mm -hmm. and they're causing a lot of problems on the team. And we all sort of swallow that because they're the best at what they do. Like we need them to do X. We're falling into that trap where we've actually reversed our hierarchy of needs ladder, where we've convinced ourselves that the technical skill or the gap we would have if they weren't there is going to kill us more than the fact that they're actually killing the team right now. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, what kind of questions you ask, focus on scenario-based questions that, and then listen closely. Like I, I view this as very similar to a coaching stance. Ask open-ended, powerful questions. Let the candidate tell you a story and then hone in on the parts of the story that seem important to you. Yeah. And follow up on those things. Tell me more about that. Or wait, what did you do when that happened? Like whatever it is and suss out the nuance. Because again, like I said, the nuance is where you're going to find the most powerful information. Mm -hmm. And something um, for me that was sort of, I don't know if I'd call it a principle or... It was a way I approached interviewing. I was aware, um, not when I started interviewing, but later on, that for most people, they make the decision of whether they're going to be thumbs up or thumbs down in the first five or 10 minutes. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, What that is, actually, I think that that is, again, falling into the thinking fast rather than the thinking slow trap. And you should very much in interviewing be thinking slow without contriving it, hopefully. One of the things I wanted to watch in my own interviews, did I ever have uh, candidates that seemed to start off poorly and then became better as the interview went on or started off well and seemed to get worse as the interview went on? Because that Mm -hmm. should happen sometimes. If that's happening, it means you're asking questions that are and you're paying attention and you're learning more information and allowing that to impact, wait, what decision am I gonna make? Because I remember I was in an interview with a producer who was, they were sort of early on in their interviewing career. I'd been doing it for a while. And I went in, I remember, I, I, I regret this actually um, quite a bit. I'd gotten to the point where I was so confident in my own interviewing and my style. I was almost like, yeah, I got this. Um, and they were there and they were going to be kind of learning this interview um, called product and process that I was pretty proficient in. Um, and I went through the whole interview and people had told me wonderful things about this candidate. They should be eschewing all these things. And I was like, okay. And I'll be honest, I, and, and to my regret, I did not take that interview very seriously. And I got out of it and I got into the after conversation with this person. And I really appreciated what they did, even though they were more you know, junior than me in the interviewing process and they were learning and I was supposed to be instructing. They were just really honest about what they saw and what happened as the questions were asked and all these things. And they changed my mind. And I realized just how easy it was for me to take what I knew, either going into the interview or learned in the first question or two, and just be like, oh, okay, cool, I've got the answer I need. Let's just go through the formality of the next 40 minutes to not be rude, and then let them ask some questions, and then we'll be done. And I deeply appreciated that other producer challenging me. There's a, there's something worth noting there, which is to, to be aware of the idea of signal to noise. Mm-hmm. Um, Nervousness or anxiety can be devastating for an interviewer, Mm. as an example. And it can cause you to literally say things that you don't actually believe or to misrepresent yourself. Like I I know people who have a social anxiety 
of the kind that they will say something that their subconscious will trick them into saying something stupid just to get them out of a scary, painful situation. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you need to accommodate for that, but you do need to be aware of it as an interviewer. And um, I've stopped interviewers or interviews in the past and been like, hey, is everything okay? Mm -hmm. Like, are we good here? Like, cause you you don't, it's not worth it if all that you're getting is crap because the other person's freaking out or because there's something wrong or maybe you triggered them or whatever it is, like we're all human beings. Your goal there is to get as much rich information as you possibly can and now that's in the way. So just keep in mind that element of it yeah. and and be aware of it too. I've I've also um, had that happen where like somebody's just bad, poorly answered just be, in the beginning just because they were like still shaking off the jitters, you know, yeah. or whatever. Well, so. that, that I think ties into this idea of remember the person on the other side of the table was human. Have empathy for them. Maybe you've never struggled in an interview and you're just always confident. Not everybody's like that. Recognize that there are differences. And I've had some candidates that were actually quite nervous who ended up being, I think, phenomenal hires. Mm -hmm. Um, Like great on the teams they went to. And, And it did. It required me as the interviewer slowing down and uh, like letting them know that they could slow down take their time. They didn't have to rush. It's okay. Um, and then you discover like when you, if you can create a space of relative safety, obviously it's never going to be totally safe. You're interviewing them. Um, if you can create a space of relative safety, it allows them to show up in a way that you might not have expected. And I've seen a lot of, I've, there's different approaches to that. I know people who do interviews and they try to lean into that really hard and see if they can break the person. And you know, hey, look, if you're in an environment where like high stress is the norm, I get why you should probably have somebody on your panel who does that, who really sees what happens when a candidate hits stress, right? Like I don't want someone in a special forces team who when the going gets tough, like collapses and can't make a decision. Um, That's not the right environment. However, recognize the environment you're in. And most of the time, that's not going to be where you are. For, I think for most people, it's true that they'll probably be way more nervous during the interview than any time. Exactly. And normal daily work. Yeah. Um, um, so, just to, so just remember they're human. Remember they're different and see what they have to say. And if if you're not, if your mind isn't being changed during interviews, sometimes something's wrong with how you're approaching it most likely. Yeah. One thing I'll say to um, maybe wrap things up unless there are uh, more things that pop up as far as advice um, is to make, hold yourself and the people accountable around you to being accountable toward your framework. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like if you're in an interview roundup and somebody's like, I don't know, seems like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in an interview and somebody's just typing away on their laptop on a, like either coding or you know, drawing a picture or sending an email or this this one I'm I'm a little cynical about this and sorry if you're the kind of person that has your laptop open or you or you're it's it's a choice you've made to have your laptop open and typing notes during an interview but like I'm very very cautious about that um, there's something about somebody putting themselves out there where I feel like I just owe it to them to have like a human to human interaction and pay very close attention to what they're saying I am not a believer in and don't feel like there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that you can be like vigorously typing down what every word somebody's saying 
constantly and actually be paying full attention to them at the same time. And again, back to what we were talking about earlier, one of the key parts of this is actually being able to suss out the nuance. It's not just the physical words that are coming out of their mouth. It's like, what's what's between the lines? What's under the surface? Mm-hmm. Like, what was their attitude? Like, what's the story that they're telling and what's the point of the story? Because that, that stuff is always there, but you have to pay really close attention to it. And that's the stuff that matters. You know what I mean? So be careful about, I think, um, overdoing the like process stuff. Like, well, I have to, and and again, a lot of times we reinforce this because we're like, well, after the interview, you have to fill out this gigantic form. And guess what? It's a lot easier to fill out that gigantic form if you already took three pages of notes. You just copy and paste and then you're done. Right. Right. But that's not the point. You know, some of my like, forms that I filled out at the end of those interviews were like, I just two sentences, couple bubbles, two sentences done. We're as with so many other things we talk about, we're human beings applying our incredible intelligence thoughtfully, hopefully with frameworks to solve complicated problems. And humans are the most complicated things you can interact with. So this idea that we can just like write everything down and decode it all is nonsense. It's the nuance that matters. That's what you need to pay attention to. And also just be respectful as as you can, whatever that means to you, to the person sitting across the table. Yeah. They're really going out on a limb and in a very vulnerable position. And when you're hiding behind a laptop screen, I, I just don't feel like it yeah. sends a good message. That's that's my opinion. Um, I think a lot of people might disagree, but uh, I, I that was always frustrating for me. And I just wanted to speak to that. I, I think as you know, the, the principle behind what you're saying, which is be able to connect with the person who's sitting there. Um, yeah. They're investing a lot. They're Like you said, they're taking a risk. Respect that um, because- I get that it's your fifth interview that week, but for yeah. them, it's probably the biggest one of of the month. Maybe. Yeah. Oh man, that could be their biggest interview of the next five years, you know? Yeah. And, and so like pay attention to them, be present yeah. with them. I think that was a big thing for me. You're not, well, you're not listen so you listen so you can actually make a good assessment too. Yes, exactly. Like be honest with yourself. Are you actually making a good assessment? Like, or are you just re, like writing and regurgitating notes? Because like I again, I just don't buy that that strategy is a good strategy to pick up on the stuff that matters. I just don't. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's for me, yes, yeah, it's, it's about being present. It's I I would often in, in phone screens, I would have my laptop out taking notes, but whenever I was in person, um, I took very few notes. Um, unless if there were two people and the other person was talking, but I, it is, it's in the interest of being present. And, um, and I think also something else that you just pointed out, and we talked about this when we were talking about assembling the panel and having different people specialize in different areas, recognize that there isn't a process that will answer this question for you. Mm-hmm. This is about judgment, human judgment, the judgment yep. of the interviewers that you put pull together onto this panel. And if it's just you, then it's about your judgment. Um, don't try to overly make this some perfect objective process. You can't, you're human, you have biases. Recognize that and do your best. Um, and do your best means spend the time to prepare. Think about who you're hiring, um, what the role is, what is important about that role, what isn't important about that role. Think about who your interviewers are um, and what types of interviews you want them to be giving, what areas you want to cover, whether it's problem solving and critical thinking or leadership or results and act, like outcomes or communication or whatever. Know that up front and create that panel. 
I love what you just said there, by the way. And like, I think that you, you, what you just did is you just put a nice bow around this. It's like, if you have a good framework for assessing candidates mm-hmm. and that framework plugs gracefully into the things you value and the kind of culture you want at your organization and what your need is, and you have a group of people that have demonstrated through their actions and results that they have good judgment in their respective areas to interview that person, you've actually done 99.9% of everything that needs to be done. That is the best process you can ever have. Yep. You don't need paperwork and you know diagrams and charts and like all this stuff. Do it if it helps you, but those things that you just mentioned, Ben, those are the most important things. Yep. And then finally, I would say, know like what's going on with the interview, be present with the candidate, um, be respectful of them, treat them like a human being. And then the last thing, don't rush a hiring decision. Um, take the time you need. And you know, just because you really need someone badly right now, if you've got somebody who you're like, yeah, but I don't think this is gonna work out long-term, say no and wait for the next candidate. Um, it will be painful now, um, it will be better later. Um, so those would be like the, the big sort of five things I would call out. Awesome, thanks for joining us and we will see you next time for part two of hiring. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.